Predictable Cold Open Part 1, like the show. Subscribe where you get podcasts. We're available on iTunes, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Downcast, iCatcher, Pod Wrangler, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, Podbean. I personally use Podcast Addict. Why go to the web? Predictable Podcast Cold Open Segment Part 2. This episode is brought to you by Horizon Books. Serving the Seattle book-loving community for over 47 years with one of the best used book collections in all of Cascadia. Mention UpZones at the register for a 10% discount today. This episode is brought to you by Horizon Books and this is UpZones. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Happy Monday, guys. Is it? Are we? Is it? Is it a happy Monday? I don't know. It's kind of hard when you see everything that's going on in the national news, especially around the border, just to think of what's happening to families, not to mention rule of law and national and international norms around how people who are trusted with power should behave. But this is not a uh, a show about national politics. It's just hard sometimes to have a happy Monday. And that's what I'm feeling right now. And... You know, one of the things that I decided when I left national politics was that I would kind of focus on me and focus on the stuff that I was doing in a very acute sense, both for my own career and locally. It's possible that that got us in trouble. A lot of folks left the Obama administration and kind of did that. We may need to start thinking globally and acting globally again soon. But in the interim... I did come here, you know, I came to Seattle, I love it here, this is my home, and I became an active part of several communities, artistic, civic, and otherwise, and and I know everybody's doing that, everybody's doing the best they can in the communities they're in. One of the things that I don't think we don't give enough shrift to in the progressive community, and and sidebar, this is not a progressive podcast, someone referred to it as such, and it's just fundamentally not true, this is a podcast advocating for density and upzoning and highlighting the human side of the people who are changing our city. But most of my guests and most, frankly, of the people who live in Seattle and work in density spaces are progressive people. And so I don't think in progressive spaces we give enough shrift to to business. When we see uh, a company like Amazon that we mostly all use throwing its weight around in the city council, when we see all the businesses, all the prison industrial businesses that will build the cages that folks are living in in Texas right now, people, six-year-olds, two-year-olds, it's easy to distrust business. But one of the principles that I do think we overlook is the fact that we are a market-oriented society, and one of the ways to change the way people behave and change the economy, which of course will then change the politics, is to do it with money and to do it with the way people are buying, purchasing, interacting, exchanging goods and services. I mean, that is what Amazon did. They they didn't set out to be a political powerhouse. They actually just wanted to make a lot of money. They changed the way we consume. They changed the way we think about buying. And now they have political clout here and nationally. Same with any of these other other companies who have problematic enterprises that are enabling 
it just policies or practices that are so abhorrent across the country right now. That ranges from Chick-fil-A, you know, right? Everyone loves to beat up on Chick-fil-A. They make great fucking chicken sandwiches, which is why they got rich enough to have such an outsized shitty impact on, you know, gay folks and single mothers. Uh, My point here, I don't I don't think we are doing a very good job on the left hand side of the dial in celebrating the power that business can have, that enterprise and free trade and markets can have to drive powerful positive change. So today, uh, this week, we've got two guests that I think are extremely interesting people with extremely interesting enterprises to their names. First, we'll speak with Arif Gersel, uh, founder of Vibe Heavy. It's like a legit startup that did a legit exit and everybody, you know, got to the pay window there. And this is a man who's done it. And now he's he's founded Pace, a nonprofit organization dedicated to leveraging STEAM, commonly known as STEAM, education to to drive more wealth creation and more opportunity and more professional satisfaction in in the black community. I think he's on to something, and I hope you'll tune in. Then uh, uh, Matt Holmes came by the studio after that, uh, by the bookstore, and he's the founder of Cobuy, which, uh, you know, his position is basically that the Great Recession recovery has been pretty tepid. Housing has accelerated far, far greater than the average worker's wage, uh, including professional white collar, you know, MBA type, corporate types. Uh, that wage has gone up uh, in the last eight years, but not as much as housing. So he's a, he's a former banker. So I jokingly, I kind of joked around. That. <laughs> I don't think he knew what to expect. He, he, he I called him the devil. But uh, in all truth, I think what he's doing is really amazing because they're their fundamental principle is that it's a lot easier to get that down payment money when three or four friends are buying together or a brother and a sister and a boyfriend or what have you. So he, he just had some interesting thoughts about that experience and, and that process. And, and you know, between, between Matt and Arif, I think we had some really good conversations about the ways that people can use business and free enterprise and chasing that cheddar to make a damn difference. how close to nervous breakdown I was until I got on a vacation. Really? Yeah, my uh, Sedaria, who you guys, who you dealt with, was, yeah. she pinged me today. She's like, hey, let me know if you got time to connect her to the podcast. I'm like, you in Seattle? She's like, I told you last week I was in <laughs> Seattle. I was like, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've been here a while now, right? Like five years or so? 17. Seattle? Okay. This is a note for me to do better homework yeah, in the future. Yeah, Seattle 17 years. 17 years. This is home now. Yeah, for the most part, it's home. My kids were born here. How many kids you got? Two, five, and seven. Jeez. Where do they go to school? Beacon Hill International. Uh-huh. So right yeah. on the top of the hill. Here. Yeah. Um, Spanish Immersion School, which is pretty cool. That's cool, yeah. 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 I wish I had them in Mexico with me last week. They definitely know more than daddy when it you, came to the language, but I needed the break. The break. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but daddy figured it out. They're five and seven. They can walk. <laughs> it, got, it got Google now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she even talks. <laughs> push the button and sounds out the Spanish for me. So that's awesome. Works that's out. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you. I guess what I would say is, what is it that that lit a fire for you for the entrepreneurship space, especially considering all the other work you're doing around getting yeah. social engagement and whatnot? I don't know, man. I, I always say entrepreneurial work or just being an entrepreneur from where I come from is just oh, yeah. synonymous with being a hustler. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in a family of people who don't have bosses. 
So, you know, I watched, you know, I was my mom's first employee. You, you know, folks watched, work for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So what I do, they know, do? Uh, my mother's a, law, a lawyer, entertainment manager. Both okay. my parents were lawyers. They were the first black lawyers to, to graduate from DePaul University right. back in the 60s. Dad did pretty well for himself before he passed away and ran into some health issues. Mom never really made a boatload of money off of being a lawyer. She was always that kind of pro bono, give back mm -hmm. to the community. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where a lot of my activism and community involvement came from. Um, well, it helps when you're your own boss. Yeah. You can make those decisions. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you can, you know, you can give back. And I've always been entrepreneurial. I mean, whether it was, I always joked my first company when I discovered the power of money and margins was a, a blizzard when I was about probably seven years old in Chicago when my grandmother told me to go um, shovel her yard, shoveled the driveway, and then I shoveled the neighbors, and somebody said, hey, kid, did you come do mine? I said, yeah, how much? And they were like, you know, 20 bucks. And I was like, 20 so bucks? Kid, yeah. I was like, yeah, I'll do it for 20 bucks. <laughs> and everybody else kind of started coming out like, hey, kid, would you do mine next? Yeah, yeah. So I went to a couple other kids in the neighborhood and said, hey, man, somebody's giving us five bucks to shovel yards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 so I hired a team. Capitalism. Yeah, man, I learned, I learned capitalism young, bro. It's like, uh, and those like, kids are probably like, five, five bucks? I'll take five bucks. And I was sitting back on my ass making 20 bucks a yard, bro. I was like, this is great. So, um, and that, that was in Ohio? That was in Illinois. Illinois, oh, right. Oh, Chicago. So then in that same thing, you know, I, my parents divorced when I was really young. So I spent my back and forth between Chicago and New York. So I took that same hustle back to New York. And when blizzards happened in New York, we would also dig cars out. So the thing about New York City is when snowstorms hit, you get the uh, plowers come down the street and they shovel, you know, they clear the and streets. Just, I swear but I'm it, from is New York. It's but it does over, over the cars. Yeah. And so the, the, the hustle became... Secondary market. Oh, I could dig cars out for 20 bucks. Yeah. Hey, dude, somebody's paying us five bucks to dig out cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So, I, I got you. I got you. Oh, you're a good one. Seven bucks a car. I'll give seven you seven. bucks. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you're a leader. Yeah. You're, you're the squad leader. You're the foreman. For this block over here. I'll go knock on the doors. I'll get the business. Yeah, yeah. And I'll point to you which car. Blue yeah, car. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so uh, that's where that started. And then, you know, um, went to college. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, if you don't come from a rich family like I didn't have that family that was dropping yeah. a shitload of money on me yeah. in college like we yeah. could barely pay for college um, you know student loans and all that other stuff you know, every now and then I'd scrape together some money from my sister would send me some bread or something but I was that dude that had the hot plate in the dorm rooms mm -hmm. you know making food and mm -hmm. like cutting mm -hmm. hair and mm -hmm. like so for me I always understood how to get a buck man it's, it's you know very early and so even what I tell you know friends and family is America's all about goods and services Mm -hmm. You're either selling a product or you're selling a service, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so understanding those two things, money is irrelevant, right? It's just a means to goods or services. Um, Interesting. And once you understand that, you know, the richest people in the world don't necessarily need money. They just need access to goods and services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. And, and so that brings me back to what you're doing here in Seattle and how you're working in the startup and slash entrepreneurial, yep. uh, especially with respect to communities of color, which is one of the areas that I try to focus on mm -hmm. in my show. Yeah. Um, you know, talk about what brought you to that and what inspires you to think not just about your own hustle as you call it but yep. the, the the collective hustle if you yeah. will well what brought me to communities of colors were my mother's my mother's womb mm -hmm. uh, so i had no choice about the community that i serve and the community mm -hmm. i'm part of you do have a choice actually it's funny i was just talking to a friend of mine earlier where i, I meet black men and women sometime in this city who don't even want to make eye contact with you and it's like what do you think you have escaped the community by not acknowledging me you all of a sudden have like you get the masquerade under whiteness cool for you all right for me, it's about understanding the power of economics and collective economics. And so, you know, 
you can be the only one in the room, but you're, you're, you're weaker by yourself and you're stronger with a collective and you're stronger with your community. And I think the black community specifically is one that has been traditionally underserved purposefully, um, has been traditionally attacked purposefully, um, has traditionally been kept from a strong economic base purposefully. And so how do we be intentional about building that collective awareness and building that strength and that base and that solidarity is something that's super important for me. Um, when you think about, you know, myself going out as, you know, when I left Microsoft, I spent 13 plus years with Microsoft as an engineer, product manager, technical evangelist, wore multiple hats. Where'd you work over there? Uh, Xbox, Windows. I finally left as w what was called a global technology evangelist for multiple technology stacks and, and industry verticals. I was in DX over there. Oh, I was in DX. Yeah. yeah. So, I was, so I was a global evangelist for media entertainment first. Um, and then I went over to retail and hospitality and I spent a small time doing telco Oracle compete, which yeah. was like, pull your fucking hair out of yeah. your nose. I, oh, this is all shit that none of the listeners care about. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like it's the shit <laughs> but, we but, care. But it's how you, it's your, that was our hustle, man. That was that's a hustle, a, that's right? how you make, that's how you get that check. And my mother used to laugh. She's like, wow, you found a perfect job. Like people pay you to talk. <laughs> She's like, you run your mouth. People yeah. pay you to talk. Wow. Yeah. It's evangelist. Is that a real role? Like I remember when I took the job. Right. And a buddy of mine were talking about, we were, we were speaking about this earlier. Now evangelism is a term you hear in, Tech yeah, a lot. it's all over. Cause but back Steve then, Jobs made it started to make it popular right before his death. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. like back then, it was like no one really knew what evangelist was, right? right? I, mean, I remember going into Canada once, and like they almost didn't let me in the country because my business card fell out of my passport. And the the border agent read it and was like, "Are you here to convert people religious, to your yeah. religion?" And yeah. I was like, "No, lady, it's Microsoft. It says yeah. it on the top. Yeah. We we aren't religious. Right. Trust me. It's <laughs> yeah. like maybe the religion of AI of the future or something, right?" Yeah. But you know, so when I when I did, when I left DPE or DX at that time and and decided, you know, it was post MBA for me. I wanted to go stab out on my own. The first thing that was. Um, the aha moment was there are no black VCs, mm -hmm. and so when you if if any of your product concepts were had a cultural component to it, blind spots mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. no and one. And that's so funny because, like, set aside any politics about capitalism, right? Right. Capitalism is power is a powerful beast, right? And if there's an audience, right, if there's a blind spot about investment in, let's say, black or Latino communities, yep. guess what? There's probably the same blind spot about the audience. Yep. Which means you miss out on money. On money. And so, right. you know, they all understand the buying power of the black community. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows the black community spends trillions of dollars a year on goods and services. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. But for some reason, they can't tap into building products for the community that mm -hmm. spends trillions of dollars a year on goods and mm -hmm. services. Mm -hmm. If I would have come to you with a movie script and said, I got this movie called Black Panther, mm -hmm. and it's all about this shot in Africa to show blah, and oh, I don't see how valuable that would be. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking movie went on to break every yeah. record yeah. <laughs> there yeah. is for movies, right? Yeah. And like, and so... It's interesting, man. And as time went on, you know, I, I also got to this role where when I, once I became successful as an entrepreneur myself, the VCs who then started to trust my opinion on things would come and say, help, mm -hmm. help me look mm -hmm. at this stuff. Okay. And yep. I would tell them, honestly, like, you guys have a blind spot, dude. Like, if I, you know, Maven, which is like a hair weave product that young men out of the Bay Area is making, you know, great money on. No one would have invested in that 10 years ago. Like, what do you mean you're going to invest in a product for women, like that was a product I pitched ten years ago, mm -hmm. 
going to India, sourcing hair, mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. this thing, and like VCs literally looked at me. Which like is I was what's crazy. happening now, right? Without the efficiencies, without the uh, the market efficiency, right? Like individual mom and pops have been getting Indian hair, but there's no market efficiency because the VCs don't back it. They don't right? back it. And so for me, I was trying to do this ten plus years ago, bro. Mm-hmm. Like get on a plane, I'm gonna go to India, I'm gonna source a bunch of hair, we're gonna brand it, mm-hmm. we can we can build the site that makes it easy for people to like buy the hair type, you know, right. and it's like, oh, I don't get it. Right. And so then I see things like Maven and I'm like, good job, good job, dude. Yeah. <laughs> right, so, good, good yeah. timing. So that leads me to a question though for you. So a lot of the change in Seattle has been pitched as unilaterally harmful to communities of color. I'm not sure that I'm there because I see opportunities if they're seized properly. And I'm curious what your take is in terms of how does this rising economic tide, which so far I'll be the first to admit is not floating all the boats, right? Capitalism is unilaterally harmful to communities of color. So you have to understand the history of this country to understand that all the stuff is systematic, right? And so you can't just say, oh, wow, Seattle's economically booming. Well, great. But the schools have been underserved for years. The black population here has been underserved for years. So just because you have a shitload of companies and transplants moving here making money, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean the communities mm-hmm. of color from here mm-hmm. are doing well. So you see, oh, well, here's some black people or Latinos or Native Americans who are doing mm-hmm. well. Ask them where they're from. They're not from here. Yeah, mm-hmm. They've come here. Right. They're the educated ones who somehow broke through their system in their locale, mm-hmm. got to college, got to university, and Microsoft and Amazon brought them out here. I'm not from here. I'm from Brooklyn. Right. <laughs> I'm doing well. I own a house. It's getting great equity. Right. But can the young man who grew up in the Central District say the same thing? Right. No. So, so what is the opportunity, if any? I mean, what opportunity is there in this time of growth to grab on? Oh, it's a very open-ended question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, the opportunity first starts with education, right? Like, if you don't understand where the world is and where the world is going, you can't dip your spoon in the river. And so a lot of where my organization, our nonprofit Pan-African Center of Empowerment is focused is what we call being a steam engine, right? So science, technology, entrepreneurship, arts and media, activism and education, right? Being activists along those verticals to, to always highlight how our communities are, are not progressing or being held back by these things. And then also educating our community on those verticals to be able to dip into those things. So, um, you know, one of the jokes that I made is, you know, after I sold my company and I was in between jobs, right, trying to figure out what I was going to do next, I decided to go back because I spent a lot of money as an entrepreneur on a technical prototype. And I had gotten so far away from engineering that I was like, man, I'm not an engineer. I'm actually paying people to engineer stuff. I'm still architecting solutions, but I actually want to build stuff again. It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense for me to drop 50K to pay an engineer to build something that I literally have a degree that I could probably go build right, myself. Right, right. So I, I went and sat in a, in a boot camp for three months. And while I was in this boot camp, I looked around and realized how many black and brown faces were coming into these boot camps with being underserved. They were paying $15,000, $20,000 to be here. Parents were refinancing homes. But they get inside of these institutions and the microaggressions were either not teaching them not taking them deep enough, not fully preparing them for the opportunities, and they were basically falling for the marketing of, you know, do three months, get a $100,000 job. And that was the bait. It was like the clickbait. And I literally said to myself, wow, I see where predatory lending went to. It went into the boot camp market, mm-hmm. right? And, and so I realized at that point, I can serve my community by passing on skills that I have. 
which mm-hmm. is engineering, which is being a full stack engineer or understanding technology or passing computer science principles down, which will allow someone, you know, not immediately to go make some money, but if you have the passion, the hustle to go do some things, you can get there, right? And so for me, that that was the first step. The second thing was understanding that our community lacked a place to be community. Um, that was in the heart of the city. I could, you know, I threw a lot of parties, a lot of events, could never find a black-owned event space. There were never black-owned restaurants. If I did find a place that was willing to take a bet on us doing an event there, I can't tell you the hoops I had to go through to convince them that the crowd was safe. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> right? This this tech startup crowd is really gonna co- yeah, flip man. a lot of tables. Yeah, yeah, man. And exactly. like you know, I remember I remember finding a black owned establishment or what I thought was black owned here uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, and I pulled no punches, man. Like still liquor. It was here. I remember some years ago we were doing an event, and I was excited to find what I thought was like, oh, here's a black owned establishment, and we had, we did a deal over like a multi week. Let's go do this event. And I remember the guy pulled the plug on us in a couple of weeks. And I remember going like, what's up? And he was like, well, a lot of my regulars walk by and wouldn't come in when they saw your audience, your crowd. And I was even looking at this dude like, are you shitting me? Yeah. The black guy. Yeah. They're like, this is your, this is your people. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not like acting up. They're just your people found a place where they felt comfortable. Yeah. And you don't even feel comfortable serving your own people mm. in this city. And that just is broken to me. And so I got to a place where I was like, you know what, I'm going to serve my community by creating a a black owned event space or a gathering spot here Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. this city. There used to be another place in Capitol Hill that I remember I used to love going to called Des back in the day Mm -hmm. before Capitol Hill became the Capitol Hill it is now. And it was owned by some Ethiopian brothers, I believe. And it was just a great spot to go grab a drink and mm-hmm. gather and see your people, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I miss that. Like, I, I grew up in New York. I went to school in Alabama. hung out in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm not used to, like, being in this, like, homogenous thing where I can't be myself and mm-hmm. be my community. Um, and so that that that's the goal for us, right, is plugging in economically, giving our community a sense of belonging and a mm-hmm. place to be and a place to engage and converse and plan and plot and strategize right. and talk business and, and talk and what's culture. your hustle what's my hustle what's let's, my let's, let's meet about, let's yeah. figure out how we do Almost a thing like a together WeWork kind of like it a, is exactly the model yeah um you know when i started off as an entrepreneur i remember going into we work and galvanizing these places man and like no knock on them they have a great business model but you can't control that you're still in america and the implicit biases and the microaggressions that come from your staff and the people who you sell memberships to who want to look at you when you walk in or want to grab their laptops like I'm there to snatch laptops and run out. It's like, dude, this is crazy. Like, I don't want to be in this place. Or the reverse of that is when I walk into a coffee shop in Capitol Hill and it's playing nigger lace trap music and there ain't a single black face in there. Right. And everybody is sitting there like bobbing out all these little geeks, you know, designer white boy geeks sitting there bobbing out to nigger lace trap music mm-hmm. and they think it's cool. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like the height of cultural appropriation and culture vulturism. But at the same time, their own implicit biases would have them crossing the street if that same artist was walking down the street towards them. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, and no. so like I just got tired of it, man, mm-hmm. and said I gotta go create safe spaces for my people. So yeah. where are we now with the with the project? Like, wh- what on, can what we, can a young entrepreneur who, who, who what what can you do? Yeah, she? young young entrepreneur in June Juneteenth will be able to come down to us, buy a membership like any other WeWork, mm-hmm. have a place they can come to from nine to nine at night, mm-hmm. um, work, um, have a bar, 
um, mm-hmm. have a place where they can throw events mm-hmm. and engage with community mm-hmm. like any other co-working space mm-hmm. um, in the city. Mm-hmm. It's African diaspora only to this point at this point. No, African diaspora focused. I mean, you can't say only anything in America, oh, right? right? And so for me, it is it is focused on building a culture and a community for a certain group of people. Mm-hmm. The Riveter can comfortably say we're opening up a, co- a woman's co-working space. Right, right. I'm not sure if I showed up and asked them for a membership to the Riveter, they can tell me no. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? I, that's, right, that's not the American way of right, doing right. things. No, that but, makes sense, yeah. I but you should also be conscious of the fact of like, you should know what this place was started yeah, for. Of course. And yeah. as a man, I shouldn't walk into the Riveter expecting that, like, I want them to change anything about what they're doing for, because for I've me. decided to want to be a member. Right, exactly, exactly. Right, so. For sure. Uh, we don't have a site up yet. Really grassroots. It's it's one of those things where I'm not even worried about that marketing because we don't have competition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right? It's like one of those things that it's it's like water in the desert. Once we open, the community will find it. That's the hope. They'll, yeah. they'll know about it. You know, and that, that's kind of our focus right now. Mm-hmm. Great. We end every show with a segment that I call, if you care about, you should fill in the blanks. If you care about black communities, you should get involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I always have a saying that money is greater than your time. Mm -hmm. Your time is greater than your talk. Mm -hmm. And your Mm -hmm. talk is greater than nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so just level up. <laughs> right. Pick where you want to plug in. Right, right. People always say, "What can I do for you right now?" I say, "Cut me a check." Right. 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 You cut me a check. You can help me scale and help us, you know, engage on, on our operations plan. Mm-hmm. If you're not in a place to cut a check, or you've already cut a check, I'd also love your time. I'd love to see your body and you use your skills and your services to do something. If you can't do either one of those things talk about what we're doing in the community mm-hmm. so you might introduce me to a check or someone else who yeah. will want time yeah. um but other than that if you're just doing nothing then just keep doing nothing and just stay out of our way yeah. kind of <laughs> <deal>. <laughs> right? um so you know if you just look at that as that equation that's kind of how i view things awesome arif right. thank you so much thank I you really appreciate your time yeah for sure man. come on back once you're set up yeah thanks right. that was arif check his organization ace out at getonpace.org. But first, stick around for Matt Holmes. So did you grow up here? I did not. Um, I grew up kind of all over. Started out in in Southern California, um, in South Carolina for I think like a year and a half, high school in Texas, and then moved to the UK when I was 17. I did did see that you're uh, school. You went to school in the UK. Uh, University, yeah. Yeah, which is a very different... I know. I know. Here, people spend two and a half years just trying to figure out who the hell they are. Yeah. Before they even pick a major, yeah. I think over there it's much more focused, right? You just kind of do what you're going to do. Uh, yeah. When you when you study at university there, um, it's you know, there's not that liberal arts component, right? right? If you're studying economics, like you study economics, right? Um, and it's most courses or most degrees are three years as well. Right. So a little bit of a different vibe, but. It was uh, it was a cool experience, you know, being in London. Yeah, at seventeen. Yeah, and then you were there just for. for yeah, I just for stayed on. Yeah, yeah, I went into uh, got got my masters half in Italy and half half there, and then um, went into investment banking actually. Right. Um, the devil. <laughs> no, no, I'm giving you a hard time. Um, <laughs> my brothers, my brother does that. <laughs> definitely, definitely, you know. Anyone who reads the news knows that there were a few people being naughty. Yeah. Um, but I learned a lot in terms of kind of um, markets, consumer behavior. 
Well, that's one of the things that I love, uh, you know, debating. I'm a big affordable housing advocate. I think it's, you know, um, the city needs to grow smart and, and equitably. And I think that there's this missing piece of markets are not just some magic totem that conservatives throw out to stymie their liberal opponents. Markets are real because things cost certain amounts. And yeah. if you don't, uh, if the economic benefit generated is not greater than the cost, you can't do the thing. Yeah. Right. And I think so an understanding and a respect for markets is actually in some ways missing from our discourse here in Seattle sometimes. So. Oh, clearly. Yeah. The wizards on the city council, uh, I'm not sure they know what they're doing. Yeah, well, um, some, some more than others. I guess. Yeah. No, I think, look, there's a clearly uh, a housing affordability crisis here. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a dynamic subject and, and a lot of things going on. But I think at the end of the day, there needs to be some policy changes, um, particularly with regards to regulation. Right. Well, how was it in London? I mean, that's a very different environment there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, completely different. You know, um, some of the key dynamics are similar. You've got a lot of demand and, and fixed supply. So f- fundamentally, you have a mismatch. But there's all kinds of regulations and codes that have to do with, you know, the history uh, of, right. of the country um, and the city. But yeah, I think, you know, what we're seeing in Seattle, to some extent, is is really similar to what's happening in, in big metropolitan areas around the world. They're struggling to, to deal with the growth in a sensible way. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not just that there's a business here that moved here. It's that there's five, right, huge businesses right. that have moved right. here. And there's just a general trend among, I mean, I don't even want, it's, the word is almost trite at this point, but there is a millennial sort of, our generation just wants to be in cities in a different way than the, the two before it. For sure. I mean, that's where the jobs are as well, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. we, we, we're transitioning towards a, a services-based economy. Right. I think it's really challenging, not just for millennials, but people of, of all ages, actually. And, um, you know, we're big proponents of seeing some policy change. But in the meantime, I think there's some other things that that, that we can do collectively, individually. Well, yeah. So what was your experience? Are you a homeowner? Me, myself, I'm not yet. The intention was to actually jointly purchase a home with my mother and stepfather for social and financial reasons when I moved over here. But instead, I took my nest egg and... Uh, decided to to start a company to help other people do that. Got it. I mean, it's just such a challenge, right? I mean, for me, the choice has been, first it was grad school or house. Yep. Spent all my money on grad school, mm-hmm. got my savings back, and now it's wedding or house, right? Yeah. So it's like, exactly. there's just, it's, the house just, the, the, these other things you have to do to stay competitive or to, you know, be a person. Right. And then the, the house just, the, the price just keeps slipping further and further away. That's it's right. It's a really hard way to live when you're, 35 and you just want to have something you call your own even if it's a condo you know oh man i feel you i'm, I'm almost 33 yeah right i think i've been really fortunate my life you know professionally did pretty well and it's still challenging yeah so right. um, i think it's it's a big problem we also know you know in the states people want to own their own place right, right? When, when when you go and in, in, in poll the the populace you know um, it's still, I think, kind of a core component of, of the American dream if we're to throw out catchphrases, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's natural. Homeownership is highly correlated to wealth creation and stability. Um, and it's just an emotive thing for many people. So, yeah, I think it, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, you know, as we see the shift of, of the population towards cities, how they deal with it. Right. Right. Um, so you've lived in Seattle how long? 
almost three years now. Okay, so yeah. you kind of came here to start go by. Yeah, that's very much so. Okay. Yeah. What what brought you here? Oh, that's a good question. Um, a confluence of, of of events, really. I knew I wanted to do something in housing. I actually co-founded Kobai with with my mother. Oh, that's cool. I yeah, didn't, I didn't take that from the the literature there. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. She's um, she's a rock star. You know, she's she was an executive in in the corporate world in the eighties and nineties. You know, that was no small feat for for a woman to kind of reach the the positions that, that she did. Um, and she's worked in real estate for over over 20 years now. So when, we, you know, I knew I wanted to do something. I'd been working in banking and it was a great foundational, like vocational training, but I wanted to do something to make a difference. Like actually be a, a maker and not just a broker. Yeah, also, also you know, do something that that's, has a positive impact on society. You know, I, I think politicians want their names to go down in like the annals of history. Like, I don't care about that, but I want to, you know, I'd like to think when I take my last breath, I'm like, all right, I did something useful for <laughs> right. people, right? right. right. So uh, we wanted to do something in housing. You know, everybody needs somewhere to live. It's ridiculously expensive. Renting's expensive in the city, right? right? Buying a house is <laughs> nigh on impossible for many people. And we saw a huge opportunity. And so, you know, she was here. Seattle's a really, really cool, dynamic place. And uh, it just, just seemed like, like a, a ripe time and location to kick it off. That's great. And so what's the problem that you're solving? I mean, I think we all empirically kind of anyone who's even thought about buying a house understands. Mm -hmm. But just very specifically, why why buying together? Why would people do that? Why do people do it? That's a great question. Generally speaking, we can break down the motivations into two buckets, social and financial, like I Mm -hmm. said, right? Uh, And with co-buyers, we've spoken to thousands of people, past, present and future clients, people who decided not to use us, etc., and there's always that trend, you know, there's always an overlap. And some people are doing it more for the financial reasons. Some people are doing it more for the social. But A, we like living together, right? We're animals. We, we enjoy each other's company. And and then on the financial side, getting the down payment is, is the you know, oh, financing is yeah. the, the major hurdle right. for, for buying a home. So right. you have these substantial economies of scale when you look at housing. So in King County, on a per bedroom basis... A three-bedroom is 42% cheaper than a one-bedroom. So by teaming up, pooling resources, you get more bang for your buck. Sure. Com- you know, add into the equation the fact that there, there, is, there just aren't starter homes, and that's where a lot of the competition is in terms of demand. Right. So you know, when you pool resources with one or more friends, family members, or loved ones, you're getting more bang for your buck, taking, econ- taking advantage of those economies of scale, but also opening up the you know your optionality in terms of what you can what you can afford and right? what is what is the problem with co-buying that the company is trying to solve right so in the wild if if like if you and i are buddies and we sit down and we want to do this together. you're saying we're not buddies <laughs> sorry <laughs> getting there, getting there. Uh, no but if we sit down and we want to buy together like where do we start mm-hmm. right you need a contract, right? I, I need to make sure you can't just scram on me halfway through the lease. and or the... Well, like, how do we get on the same page about what type of home we want, right? right. And how do we structure that discussion? Not just with regards mm. to the target property parameters, right? But, like, ownership. Like, how much, are you, how much money are you bringing to the table? How much money are you willing to contribute on a monthly basis? Mm-hmm. How do, you know, how does that compare against my financial inputs, Right? What's your credit like? Mm-hmm. How do we combine those resources and how is that going to be reflected in relative ownership splits in mm-hmm. the property? How do we structure it? Right? 
how do we take and hold title? Do we need to, you know, A, can we even do this? Yeah. Is this, is this right. okay? Do we form an LLC? Mm-hmm. What is title? <laughs> you know what I mean? What <laughs> right. happens if, you what, know? What is title? Yeah, title title confers ownership in, in real property, right? So, you know, the format of title that you that you take and hold is a reflection of, of effectively the ownership structure. In so the, you can the own the land and the house, you can own so the like, land and not the house. Well, for instance, there's different... Two, two common formats are joint tenants with right of survivorship and another another format's tenants in common. They have different implications. In the mm. former, if you and I buy together and we're joint tenants with right of survivorship, you die, I automatically inherit your ownership interests. Mm-hmm. Also, necessarily, we have equal ownership interests mm-hmm. under that format. Under tenants in common, we can have different ownership. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and if one of us passes away, that ownership interest doesn't necessarily pass to the other person. Mm-hmm. It's to whoever you would leave your will to or your, your estate. And, and you're going to want to have a plan, right? Because if you don't have a plan, things can get messy. Right. Yeah. yeah. A, a, if that a, makes sense. A sibling or, or a spouse or whatever might assume, but then a co-owner might assume and you get into sort of complicated social situations, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. Right. And here's the kicker. You know, if something comes up that we haven't thought about, one of those what-if scenarios actually comes to pass, you know, we might disagree. And if we don't have a plan for how we would extricate ourselves from that co-ownership arrangement, what what happens could ruin then? your life. We could go to court. Yeah. That could be very, very costly. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, it could bankrupt you. Yeah. So what we're trying to do, you know, when you ask what problem are we solving, we're making it easier for people to team up pool resources and buy homes together and to do it intelligently mm-hmm. mindful of the risks mm-hmm. that's great you know i think it's just a testament to the fact that like loads of people are doing this when we started there was no aggregate data so you, i couldn't tell you how many cobai you know purchases there are right. nationally every right. year since we started are you building that or is your team working to build that or is there someone third party that's that's trying to build that that is a big part of what we're doing we want to be sensible and respectful right, right. the antithesis right. of what you're seeing happening you know, with, with uh, some of the big tech players. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I think like, you know, the more we understand about who's doing this and why, the better in terms of Bureau of Labor and Statistics data, Census data, National Association of Realtors data. You know, you, you really couldn't come up with a number of how many co-buy transactions are happening. But more recently, Adam Data, which is a big national real estate data provider, published an article that said... Basically, that almost one in four transactions nationally, home purchases, that is, of single-family homes, are, are co-buy transactions. And mm-hmm. Let's just back up a sec. What, you know, what is a co-buy? Co-buying is when two or more people who are not married to one another decide to purchase and own a home together, yeah. whether or not they're occupants, right? So we're dealing with all sorts of cases. But, so you uh, might have siblings. Yeah. You might have just college buddies. Yeah, right? you might have two couples Sure. Married or unmarried, we're working. Right now, we're working with multiple instances of that. Uh, we've got intergenerational households, intentional communities, uh, polyamorous mm-hmm. folks. Mm-hmm. You know, and re- regardless of like the combination of people, and that's that's really what we started this to be useful to everyone who wants to do this. Right. It's really about empowering consumers, and that's really important. I think like. Having in business school, they teach you vision, mission, values, and you're kind of like, yeah, whatever, right? right? <laughs> but but our vision is is you know we want to improve access to home ownership 
um, like I said, because it's it's highly correlated to wealth creation and stability, and because people want to own their own homes. And there's such a high boundary, you know, if if, if you're somehow <laughs> that down payment just keeps <laughs> getting bigger. Down every, payment, yeah. <laughs> so if you can put two people in, so that that or know, three or three or yeah, four, yeah, whatever you know, we yeah we're seeing all different combinations of people, and it's really exciting as well. Going forward, you know, you asked, uh, are we going to be in other geographies? Definitely. We want to be as useful to as many people as possible. To date, we've had, we've been really lucky. We've had extraordinary interaction with with our, our clients. And I think there's, you know, we're starting to see a trend, like who co-buys? Well, spans all ages, all demographics, professions. You know, they, they tend to be people who are social, thoughtful, and it kind of makes sense, right? Like if you're going to team up and live with friends or family members. Sure. Yeah. Where's the office? Uh, our office is in Pioneer Square. Okay. Uh, Pioneer Building. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Okay. Yeah, I know there's so many startups down there. You've got the, it's a hot the thing, yeah. hub down there. Impact Hub. Impact Hub. That's right. That's yeah. Right. We actually um, we had an event there, which was rocking. Like yeah. I saw the Seahawks win the Super Bowl in that. They put it up on the... Oh, nice. Yeah. You know that one big, the big open public space where the kitchen is and everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they just threw the game up on the wall. Oh, nice. That would have been awesome. cool. It was, you know, 200, like, business... Not even business. Everybody was there, and we just watched them kick Denver's ass. So it was, it was, awesome. it was really great. <laughs> what's that vibe like right now? In, in, in terms of, Well, just in terms of... It sounds like there's... Every week I hear about some new company, mm-hmm. little company that's doing something right down in Pioneer Square. I mean, is there, do you guys have like a secret handshake? That you guys <laughs> <have>? <laughs> no, you know what? To be honest, there's three of us right now. We've got kind of those standard startup challenges and opportunities. We've got so many more people who want to co-buy at, at this stage than, you know, I suppose than we anticipated. So we're looking at growing mm-hmm. our, our team and, and iterating our platform. And um, so I've really had my head down. So um, I, I probably haven't been as up to date with kind of the startup the scene. scene. Yeah, that might be better actually. <laughs> if I were investing in your company, I'd be like, maybe he's better that he's actually doing his job. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. No, I mean that's cool. I think um, networking is important. It's cool to see some of the the fun, innovative ideas and businesses that that folks are working on. Actually, just yesterday. Um, met someone who was really cool who's working on something in real estate so yeah you know i'm trying to get out more and more and do that but we've we've had our head down my focus mm-hmm. right on um usually this is the part where uh we say you know how do you get involved i think with yeah with Kobai, it's a little different because it's more of a of a business but what would you tell people you know who might be interested in, in potentially co-buying a home first thing i'd say is just head to our website um gocobuy.com so g-o-c-o-b-u-y.com mm-hmm. and uh, what we're finding is so many people don't know that this is an option mm-hmm. so like we and we we speak a lot about millennials you know because yeah. all over the press and stuff but um you know you may have a brother and a sister and the boyfriend or girlfriend or partner or what what have you um living together and they're spending you know like 1500 bucks a month each on renting a place um and there's nothing wrong with that like i said we're not pushing this on anyone but sometimes they don't know that hey they each have like 15 grand or 20 grand hanging out in their in their bank account right right uh and they don't know that by teaming up they could buy a house together and hey that could also be a fixed term play Mm -hmm. so you know we're agnostic with regards to where property values are going but like let's say that property values like taper off and, and stay flat 
right? If there's three of us, we have some cash hanging out in our bank account and we're already spending a lot of money on rent each month funding our, our landlord's mortgage. Well, it may be an option to like look at co-buying right. as long as we do it sensibly and have a plan for how we'd get out, right? And um, with some pretty conservative assumptions, uh, it can be financially advantageous even over a relatively short time frame. Mm -hmm. So I guess the biggest thing is we're just getting out the word and, and helping people understand. In fact, on the way here, I took a, a lift and, um, and my driver was a really cool guy. He kind of said, wow, I didn't even know this is a possibility. I live with my girlfriend, mm -hmm. right? And I've been trying to save up for ages. Mm -hmm. I, I work a, a corporate job and then I do this on the side and it just seems impossible. And he's like, yeah, man, that's awesome. So it's just about awareness, right? right. Just like helping people understand that this is a possibility and, and also understand that it doesn't take as much as people think. And so I, th I think a lot of people are shocked. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, that's, that's really exciting. Um, we like to end every show with a segment we call, if you care about, you should. Yeah. Fill in the blanks. No, I'd say, I'd say if, if you care about your, your personal finances and you care about your retirement, you might want to look into how you're going to build that nest egg, right? I think so often we just don't think about it. I rented with my best friend Ernesto in London for 10 years in central London. I look back and I was like, wow, we, we could have done this and I would be financially substantially better off today. You know, I, I don't want to say I was lazy. I was busy. I wasn't informed, right? So I'd say if, if, if you care about your financial future and, you know, the, the freedom that 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 can afford you mm -hmm. then do a little research and, and tell your buddies yeah. <laughs> awesome matt thanks for being on my pleasure thanks come a lot. on back soon let us know yeah how you're thanks doing. a lot okay. appreciate it that's all for this week team arif gersel's pace launches this week as a support system for technical and non-technical innovators of the african diaspora go take care of business at getonpace.org that's getonpace.org Want to own a home but worried housing prices are out of control? Maybe you can buy together. Check out Matthew Holmes' co-buy at gocobuy.com. That's gocobuy.com. Today's music was by The Subcons, poem sample by Anthony McPherson, and sound by Naboo. I am your host, Ian Martinez, and this has been Upzones. My favorite. See you next week. <laughs>